Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Founders Uncut, the podcast that goes beyond the romanticized founder journey to discover the moments of vulnerability and doubt that even the most successful founders face. I'm Maria Palma, general partner at Kindred Capital. Here with me today is Sean Black, who is the co-founder of Knock. Prior to that, he was the co-founder of Trulia, and he's now been at Knock and raised hundreds of millions of dollars, both in equity and debt to help people buy their next home. But these are just the headlines. You can hear the real story on Founders Uncut. Actually, it started in September of 20, I guess, 2019, when this thing called SPAC came along and no one knew about it. And it was sort of a dirty four-letter word. It was a way for people to go public. It had been done right under the covers for a long time. And suddenly it started to become mainstream. Uh, And one of the companies in our space started to do it. We talked about it in a board meeting, and by November, December of that year, we decided to go all in on it. And then by January, I actually hired Goldman Sachs to represent us, basically to go public via via SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Vehicle. Hopefully everybody knows what that is by now. Um, Nobody did then. In fact, Goldman at the time was reluctant to even put that on the merger agreement. It was just an M&A agreement because you're basically merging with this existing public entity as opposed to actually going public the traditional way. But yeah, we were sort of ahead of the curve on deciding to do it. Uh, hired Goldman Sachs had actually chosen pretty early a SPAC sponsor, which is the owner of the, the, the company that was already public. Um, we had some people in common, really liked them, went through the process anyway, announced it all in March. The timing for announcing was perfect. The timing for doing it was ended up being terrible <laughs> when we announced it. Uh, all of the stocks in general, tech stocks and prop tech stocks and fintech stocks in particular were at their highest highs. All the SPACs themselves were trading really high, all our comps. Uh, we were valued at $2 billion based on those comps. And, you know, this is a way to go public a couple years before you otherwise would. Uh, we had taken yeah. Trulia public uh, within seven years, which I think is a pretty aggressive number. We like, like wanted to beat that. And this was a way to do it. And this was because there was no yield in the market. Um, and institutional investors were effectively going upstream uh, or downstream, if you will, to get companies that would otherwise go public in a year or two anyway and just get them earlier. Yeah. And I think for those that weren't as close to it, but I think most people lived through it a bit, um, it was like this thing that had existed for a long time, but wasn't really used. And all of a sudden there was just an explosion of SPACs, right? Yeah, there was. And there was fits and starts of there would be a bunch of supply and then it would take a minute to absorb it. So there'd be a pause. And that had happened in November when we were sort of choosing our bank. And then in March, it was sort of gangbusters again, despite the fact that it seems like an easier way to go public. It is not. You have to do all the same regulatory stuff. You have to build for compliance. You have to 
you know, go through the same roadshow from an investor perspective because mm-hmm. um, you're, you know, you're raising what's called a pipe, which is effectively like the part, the IPO part that you raise. The entity itself has a bunch of money in it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, without that boring mechanics, you're doing a lot of the same things you would, would do to go public, uh, which is insanely time consuming. And all the while you're trying to grow the company to look like a public company in terms of growth metrics and revenue and gross profits. Like how many headcount are you hiring just to be ready to do this? I mean, we had the CFO who came to us from Lyft who had taken both Lyft and Uber public. She brought in a ton of compliance people on treasury and all the sort of SEC regulation stuff. It's a lot. It's like a lot of overhead in general mm-hmm. to just be compliant. Uh, and by the way, that isn't even the cost of like what the, what the SEC charges you and what the exchanges charge you. It's a ton of overhead to go public for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, so we went from like last year, for example, while this was happening, we went from 14 markets in the beginning of the year to 75 markets. Uh, you know, we're a market by market rollout because you have to be licensed and we're a lender and there's so much regulation and you're obviously helping people buy and sell homes, which is a local business. Right. So, yeah, we were ramping really aggressively. Uh, and a big part of that was yeah. was to be public. So what happened with this back and the attempt to go public? So we announced in March, although we were well underway of doing all the work that we needed to do, um, the SPAC sponsor had Morgan Stanley on their side representing them. So we had you know meetings every day with large groups of very sophisticated people. We were in a really good place. The company was in a really good place. Uh, we wanted to go out in April-ish timeframe, but the SPAC market paused again because there was a glut of companies, more supply than people knew what to do with. Um, so we waited and then it, it was clear that it wasn't necessarily just going to go away. And also there was this sort of wall of, of, of pent up, uh, supply that was going to hit the market. And so we just decided to rip off the bandaid and go out. Um, we cut our valuation in half, not because it had anything to do with us. It was the comps themselves had been. Everything was trading at like 40% or something of what it had initially been projected at. Fast um, up, fast down, right? Um, yeah. So, you know, we went out, we sort of kicked off the pipe process. It was a big question on like, could you even get meetings? We got well over 100 meetings within, you know, a six-week period of time. So, you know, we had enough an interesting enough story and interesting enough sector. People can relate to housing is super broken. It's huge as a, uh, as a space. It's the single largest consumer transaction, $1.7 a year in the U.S. alone. Um, so we got the meetings, really sophisticated, you know, institutional investors. They all loved us. They loved the story. But the market was wonky, right? The SPAC market in particular. And, you know, there was a big question of like what was happening. And the market was evolving very quickly. It went from like people throwing money at companies going public and locking it up to <laughs> the first time I heard the word, I think it was in March, in May, was, uh, or maybe it was the end of May, the beginning of June, was we want structure, we want structure. And I'm like, what the hell is structure? Well, it turns out structure, I think more people know what that means now, means they want it to look like debt, but ha- so have all the downside protection of debt, but all the upside uh, of equity. <laughs> so they want their cake and eat it too. And that started to become a theme. Uh, increasingly of these investors, and that made it complicated, right? So our SPAC sponsor is trying to figure that out. We're trying to figure that out. How do we get ahead? How do we create a, create a construct that we're one of the few that gets uh, to raise this, this pipe investment? Um, and that was like weeks of complication and pitching. And, you know, um, so, so anyway, this was all happening. And, you know, it became clear that SPAC, like the SPAC market just kind of went sideways and sideways and sideways. And it was clear by like June, it, end of June, it wasn't coming back. Um, mm-hmm. and so we were one of the first to decide to just basically pull it and and not do it. 
And when you made that decision, you know, who, like, was it pretty unanimous and everyone was just like in agreement or where, was it a contentious decision amongst the board and the people who were helping or how, how did you get there? It was not a popular decision from our spec sponsor because, you know, they, they had five vehicles and several had gone publicly, you know, successful, publicly successful. Um, they had a lot vested, six months, a lot of banker fees, a lot of just time. And they were really good at what they did. We had a lot of confidence in them and they evoked a lot of confidence and kept us on probably longer than we should have. Um, I think from the board's point of view, we all just, it was more like a, you know, we were sort of at the point in no return. We had invested like not just the, what, seven, eight months of time and building team and all of that. So that was a hard decision. I will say what made it a little easier, our thought was like, hey, look, we're in another 18 months, we'll be ready to do to do an IPO traditionally. So like, it's not the worst thing in the world that we wait and just build up to the, you know, typical hundred million in uh, annual revenue and just do it the old school way. And by the way, we just took a hundred plus meetings from much institutional investors. We'd love to have on the cap table. When we do that, if we keep them close to it, then, you know, this wasn't for not, right. We had the compliance in place. We had a lot of the stuff we would need for the S1 and all that. So, um, yeah, it wasn't popular because we were raising $400 million and that would have set us up for a pretty long time. Um, but it had to be done. And the unfortunate timing aspect was, as you know, you don't want to raise money at the end of June. You can be closing around the end of June. You do not want to start raising money at the end of June. And, you know, the summer before you could do it because no one wanted a vacation because of COVID and you could actually get away with raising money. This felt like I could see the fatigue on everyone's faces and you could tell people actually were going to take vacation that summer. So we just decided, okay, we're not going to fundraise in the middle of this. We'll just pivot to a private round with Goldman and we'll go back to the same institutional investors. A lot of them are crossover investors, meaning they'll do private companies 18 months before going public. Some of them won't. They just want to do it right before. Um, so they all loved us. We got a ton of positive feedback. They just didn't like SPAC. And so, you know, we were like, okay, we'll go eight in September. We'll go back and raise a private round, $150 million from that group. Uh, and, you know, the conversation at the board level was like, okay, is that the group or should we go back to the venture late stage venture capital and I just thought we were so far beyond that from a structural point of view and the way we were thinking, no knock on late stage venture, but like you tend to get married to 20 something spreadsheet jo jockeys who aren't interested in a story. They're just interested in, in the numbers. And we were like pushing really hard to be a, a public company. So I can probably tell you that our, you know, our numbers at the like, you know, loss level weren't, didn't make sense. Unit economics were getting better and better, and better. Anyway, uh, we made a huge, the biggest decision I think that I regret making is that we a hundred percent stuck with institutional investors because what ended up happening when we went back in September was two things. One, there were seven other companies that our team at Goldman and there are multiple teams at Goldman, but our team at Goldman were representing that also pivoted to a private round. Then everyone was waiting until after Labor Day, which means like everyone was getting pinged, all the institutional investors at the same time which is fine. We sort of broke through that noise. We had a lot of sort of very current, fresh dialogue. But then just the macroeconomic climate changed, right? The stock market really, in general, started having problems. And you also still have COVID going on in the background. Right? I think this is when Delta had the surge. Yeah, Delta had a surge, and that caused a lot of panic of another shutdown. And that sort of really hurt, hurt the financial markets in that moment. Um, and then, but we sort of were getting through it. We had a ton of commitments, and you're typically getting commitments in 10 to $25 million sort of chunks, because right? a lot of these institutional investors can't even get out of bed and write a check that's less than a family office, 10 million, a institutional investor, minimum 25. So we didn't actually need that many of the folks that we saw to like mm -hmm. put this together. But then, <laughs> but then the public market was falling apart and even the sort of broader financial stocks were starting to go all over the place. And you saw 
that these institutional investors had to suddenly do triage on their portfolio, their public facing portfolio. And so that was their priority was like, okay, now what am I doing with this portfolio? And am I buying, am I buying down the cost average down? Like less and less time was going to new investments. So you were like really trying to, you know, challenge to, uh, to get attention. And so we were start, we were getting through that. We had enough commitments to kind of get it there. And then another macroeconomic challenge that was very specific to us, which was Zillow is broadly in our, you know, the prop tech part of our, we think about our comps as prop tech and marketplaces and fintech. Uh, Zillow being the leader of, of the sort of prop tech category. And Zillow, by the way, is who you sold your last company to, right? We Trivia. did. And both are focused on buyer, but now both have realized that seller is also an incredibly interesting market. Well, sellers were always an interesting market. We tried really hard to figure out how to get a sellers, but you, the problem is sellers don't identify until they go out and hire an agent. So Trillia and, and, and Zillow both were very focused and ours continue to be focused on buyers, but seller leads, because you know, Trillia and Zillow sell leads to agents ultimately. They're selling eyeballs in the form of like buyers. Um, there are no real seller leads, quote unquote, at scale. And Zillow got into the business of iBuying, meaning buying houses just outright and creating for the first time ever, uh, creating a portfolio of homes, you know, had record revenue because they were counting house prices as revenue, but they realized that suddenly there's estimate wouldn't work at scale. And they decided to just pull out of the iBuying business, which was a massive shock. I think they, at that time reported they were going to lose about $600 million. And on a one time they laid off, I think it was like 25% of their of the company and that was sort of dedicated to this, the future of their company. Anyway, that caused a huge ripple because a lot of the, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was a, the vast number of analysts covered Zillow as opposed to anybody else in the sector. Uh, and so there was a lot of like, holy shit, what does this mean for anything innovative in housing? We weren't an iBuyer. We're not an iBuyer. We're providing all of the financing to a consumer upfront. So they're, we're like the rich uncle. We give you all the money you need, go into the market, be a cash offer with whatever agent you want to use. Then we behind you put the mortgage in place and give you whatever you need for the down payment, all that stuff. But your point, you can articulate the difference, but to them, it's still in the same space. Yeah, huge baby, deal. baby with the bathwater. It was, they just froze and it needed, so there needed to be time for it to be digested. So then everybody just was like, okay, like we're not going anywhere, but we need a minute to like close this. <laughs> uh, and then World War III broke out, right? Uh, Russia mm-hmm. invaded the Ukraine and then back to scrambling with their public portfolios, they went. Um, so, so it was, um, it was like, you know, we started the year and even the year before in September, obviously making the decision to go public is a really exciting one, building the company, you know, going from 15 to 75 markets and the numbers, you know, I've said in my blog post is every number that mattered, our KPIs, which were GTV, gross transaction value, um, revenue and gross profit. We're just up and up and up and up and up. Yeah. I mean, this whole time, by the way, you managed to like grow every single month by like double, triple digits, right? So like, that's not an easy thing to do while you're also distracted with this. And and there was at some point also an acquisition offer, right? Towards the end of this process. Well, so when, 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 when the Russia invaded the Ukraine, we had one of the companies in our space come to us because we were talking about partnerships and actually we were talking to them about investing in the round. Uh, and they were like, Hey, why don't we just talk about you know, bringing you in all, entirely. Uh, and this was early December. And and we were, we had had these sort of approaches before. We weren't interested. We want to be an independent company. That's why we decided to go public. But obviously, given the circumstances and the environment, it was the, you know, responsible thing to do. So we actually took, 
you, you can't just do one conversation. You have to have a couple different, you know, alternatives and leverage them and, you know, do your fiduciary responsibility to your shareholders, which is evaluate different options. So yeah, we spun up a really quick M&A process with them in the lead and having the most information and being the closest to us. Um, <laughs> but their stock market, their stock was, was, you know, sinking. And it's interesting when in years, these and the others are multi-billion dollar market cap companies. And it's interesting to see behavior of people in general. So first of all, like I would have thought institutional investors were more sophisticated than the emotional reaction I saw them have when they were panicking mm-hmm. about their public portfolios. They they turned into five-year-olds all of a sudden, <laughs> like immediately, right? These are people with like double degrees from Harvard and Stanford and you name it. But when this much money is at stake, suddenly they become, you know, emotionally five years, five years old. So that was interesting. And then even with these companies that uh, all of whom we knew really well, we had BD conversations with of some shape or form. In one case, we were actually already working with them. So they knew us, you know, but they're watching their stock sink. And their perspective is, shit, like we're undervalued. I don't want to use my stock to buy anything right now. And oh, by the way, I also don't want to use cash because I don't know how easy it's going to be for us to go raise more money. Uh, and so we just couldn't decide on a, on a price that, that mattered. It was like the goalpost kept changing uh, daily, literally. So we just, um, you know, by Christmas, New Year's, we just decided we're going to stay, you know, private and march on. And by the way, Christmas is also not the time of year you want to be raising money <laughs> or doing an M&A. Yeah, yeah. Or trying to sell a company. Yeah. It sounded like you had a pretty intense holiday period. Um, and so how did you end up resolving the situation? I know you did a recent round. Yeah, we did. So we actually, we went back to the, after all this time, um, we, we went back to the venture community and basically were able to raise uh, around pretty quickly, both equity and debt. But we had to, you know, we had built for a public, we had built the size for a public company. So we had to make a really painful decision, which it looks like a lot more companies are now making two months later to, you know, cut uh, a lot of the overhead in the company that was related to being public. So there's a, a big, big headcount reduction. Tough decision. Um, and also, I'm sorry to bring it up. I'm sorry that this happened, but your your dad passed away also during this process, right? Yeah, right at the tail end of the private raise when everything was more or less set um, and it was just a lot of paperwork. Uh, I thought I could, yeah, my dad sort of got diagnosed with late stage, you know, uh, cancer. I was actually in California at the time uh, in a present presentation. My sister said, you need to come home today, uh, which I did. In the end, yeah, he 10 days later, he was gone. So um so that was happening as we were closing around and it wasn't as easy. I, I thought I could disconnect. I said in the blog post that, you know, my team pretty much had it, but there were, it was, it was complicated. So, and we had a couple of um, challenging investors <laughs> that, needed, that required me to be involved. So yeah, we were, we were managing both of those at the same time. Yeah. Well, people are writing a huge tech, right? They want to talk to the founders and that's, but that's, I mean, first of all, I'm very sorry that happened. Yeah. Second of all, like, let's just talk about your mindset in this whole thing, right? This, this That is a lot of twists and turns to go through in a one year period as you're growing the business, as you have a real life, you know, you're trying to be a human. So how is your mindset throughout this thing? Is there, is there a moment where you're just like, I'm ready to give up? I'm throwing in the towel. Or did you kind of just feel like we're going to figure it out one way or the other? Or did you think it was like, there was no option? How were you feeling throughout this? I think we actually, I'm trying to think of what the timing exactly was, but I think we either did or announced a riff right around the time the stuff with my dad was happening. So that was really painful. We're huge on culture. Um, you know, we built Trulia on culture. People stayed there 14 years, which is unheard of in, uh, in you know, Silicon Valley. 
Um, it was because we built such an amazing culture through an IPO, through uh, an acquisition. And we did that here. I think we even learned and built even a better culture. So letting people go is incredibly heartbreaking. It's, I'm sure, heartbreaking for anyone. But for us in particular, it's sort of like uh, it sort of was a punch in the face to our core values. But there was just nothing we could do but be transparent and open and empathetic and everything. So anyway, that emotional sort of string was being pulled while then my dad I don't know. At some point, you kind of go a little numb, I think. Uh, and mm-hmm. I do, fortunately or unfortunately, I do become calm in chaos. I actually thrive in chaos. But I will say emotionally, I, if any founder tells you that they don't want to quit through something like this on a daily basis, they're just lying. Uh, it, it occurs to you every single day. But no, you also know you have you know a couple hundred people depending on you. They, at least our folks, have families and you know, they're just relying on us, all the people who invested in us, obviously all the work that we put into this, all the customers. By the way, at the time, I think we probably had something on average of 150 people like in in the middle of a transaction, in the middle of buying a home with us, maybe 200. Mm-hmm. Like you can't leave them hanging, right? You know, I tell founders all the time, I'm sure you do too, the POP, by the way, our culture, the acronym that describes our culture is Popsicle. And, and the first P is people first. And the second P is, is passion. You know, I tell founders all the time, you better not just come up with any business, but something you love and are passionate about. Because when it gets hard, if you don't give a shit <laughs> about what you're doing, the mission, uh, it's, re- it's just really hard to sort of fight back. But for us, I mean, you know, it's very easy to see how we're a mission-driven company. We affect people's lives every single day who are having kids, bigger kids, going, getting divorced, getting married, whatever the sort of life event is that makes you buy, want to buy a house. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I through it, found I was surprised at my own resolve. And by the way, I had lots of help between my co-founder being amazing and I had two, I still do have two uh, coaches uh, through it all uh, and an amazing board. Uh, and group of investors and company. And so I have all these amazing people around me, but for sure it definitely fucks with your head. Yeah. Yeah. I also think on the Rift side, I think unfortunately we're in a tough market and there will be a lot of people in that same position, as you mentioned, you know, do you have any advice for, and I think you told me once, like you can't do two in a row, you've got to do one and and go as deep as you need to, but any advice for how to do a riff, how to communicate it, and also how to do it in a way that respects your values, right? I think a lot of people talk about values, and it's really easy to con- talk about values when you're bringing on people and hiring people, but it's different when you're in a tough moment or you have to lay people off. Yeah, so actually, and, and not coincidentally, because you're seeing now a lot of investors and others talk about what's coming and how to how to deal with it. Uh, Pete Flint, who you know is my co-founder and was the CEO at Trulia, just wrote a blog post. He's at NFX, so it's nfx.com. He just wrote a very detailed blog post yesterday. Literally, I'm reading it right here, 39 moves to survive and thrive in a downturn. Pete had been, actually, your UK folks will appreciate this. He was the first employee uh, in the early 2000s at lastminute.com, which was nascent then, but now is obviously the largest travel site or would become it. Um, and that was impacted by um, 9-11 dramatically with travel. Uh, and so that was pretty early on in their life, how they had to face a significant downturn and adversity in the sector. Uh, and then at Trulia in 2000, we started Trulia in 2005 and 08, the mortgage crisis happened literally in our backyard. <laughs> uh, and he talks about how we had to survive and how we had to do a layoff then. We had, t- I wish we had more time to be thoughtful, but I think our DNA was to think about the people first. And I think he makes suggestions mm-hmm. about creating career days. And we did this Trulia where we like rented conference rooms and had any company we knew was hiring, just take everybody mm-hmm. to 
um, to the conference room. We actually brought in, I had a couple, I'm actually pretty friendly with the CEOs of a, a couple of our competitors and some of those publicly traded companies I mentioned. I actually called them all first and said, like, if they're going to go to a competitor, I'd rather them go to you because I know you and I trust you and I know you'll treat them well. So we actually had a couple of CEOs of publicly traded companies get involved personally, create VIP channels that they could apply if they wanted mm-hmm. to stay in the sector. Um, they handled them really well. Um, we had our one of our recruiters who actually left. They, we created a Slack group, or they did, to support each other. And she did like resume writing classes. So, And we supported it however we could financially. Um, so we did everything that we could. And you know, Pete talks a lot about in that blog post, focus on the stay team, right? Because you need the home team to sort of be, you know, that's a, there's a big mental shift and emotional shift and morale mm-hmm. shift that you need to you know, do affect at home um, with the people who stay, but then you also have to, they also are watching what you're doing with the people who go. Yeah. They talk to each other, right? They're all friends and they know each other. Yeah. We had one or two people who are with us who, you know, there's also this sort of um, psychological, emotional challenge. I think the biggest problem that people have to stay other than worrying that, you know, they're going to be okay is they feel guilt that, their friend didn't get to stay, but they did. Uh, and, you know, we had one or two people who really hung on to that for a long time. It's hard. You got to help people get over that hump, especially if they're younger and they haven't seen this before. That's the one big challenge, right? You have a lot of startups with younger sort of startup teams. That's typically the, the DNA. And if they haven't seen this before, it all feels horrible. If you have never, it is horrible, by the way, but it, it all like is shocking the first time you do it rather than pattern recognition, which is what Pete talks about. Yeah, I mean, for most people, they've been in the career, they've been in their career so far in a, in a bull market, truly only. And so it's it's very hard to, to see this for the first time. So in terms of, you mentioned before coaching, and I think a lot of founders think about coaching. We're huge advocates of coaching. I personally have a coach. Like we at Kindred actually pay for coaching for founders for our first year and help them find a coach. Talk to us a little bit. I think just like undo the magic for people so people understand what that looks like. Why do you choose to have a coach? Why do you have two? How do you work with them? And what do you personally get out of founder coaching? Yeah, so... Um... I had done my last company, first round capital had invested in, and they had brought a lot of coaching in sort of like these group events that they did. And that's my first sort of, and it was a group session and a group environment. I had never had a therapist before personally. Um, so I didn't know what that would look like. And in New York, it's pretty, I, you know, spent the last however many years in New York, like it's pretty typical for, for everybody in New York to have a therapist. If you're in New York longer than five years, you need a therapist, period, end story. <laughs> it's just the way it is. I don't care what industry or business you're in, just to, to stick that out because it's hard. It's challenging. Interestingly, during COVID, so, so COVID happened, what, March, April, obviously the world paused. No one knew what this meant for them. But I would say like, I think it blew everybody away that like suddenly we had this massive explosion. But homes in particular were like, it went from nothing to like three weeks later, we couldn't handle the demand. I mean, we're effectively making all buyers cash buyers. And that's exactly what people wanted. They wanted certainty, convenience. They wanted to get the hell out of New York City or San Francisco. And usually they were going back home to Michigan or wherever they're Phoenix, wherever they grew up, where they thought they never wanted to live again and buying a pretty great house uh, with a backyard and uh, whatever, you know, a third bedroom for a classroom for their kids <laughs> for the next foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. So, you know, things were actually really good after the first month of COVID for us. And there was a lot of opportunity. I was listening to a podcast. It was a Tim Ferriss podcast. And I don't know why, but he was like, I used to listen to him religiously. I just happened to stumble upon this particular podcast and he was interviewing Hugh Jackman. And this was in the COVID and he was living in New York. See, told you everybody in New York needs, uh, mm-hmm. cause he was doing a show when, when COVID happened and he stayed 
And he had mentioned that he had this personal coach because he's a few, as an actor, I don't know if you know anything about him or follow his career, but he's very serious and he takes, he does a lot of theater. So he's pretty like technical about the way he approaches his profession. Um, and one of the things he talked about on that podcast was that he uses a, a coaching firm in New York called the Handler Group. And so I immediately looked it up because it was in my backyard and found a coach, not his, who's the founder of the company because I didn't think it was a good fit. But they found me a coach actually based on my needs. And they worked with lots of founders and other, uh, and other folks. And that was August. And I hired my first coach, whose name is Will, um, then. And it was game changing for me. We're now like good friends. He's gone on and started a a tech company, a death tech company, which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, but he actually handed me to his sort of good friend within the firm. Uh, and I've had those guys ever since. And they're, they're, um, I had actually gone to therapists. I have, uh, through our benefits, we had, um, doctor on demand and I tried a bunch of, it was free for us. So I tried a bunch of, you know, doctor on demand during COVID and I didn't like, I think you really need a personal fit with your therapist. And also I just didn't think they had any business experience or any sort of like, relevant experience for what I was going through. Coaches are much better because they're, they're, business, they're CEO coaches yeah. or business coaches. Right. Um, and so I, I, that was, they're not cheap. I will say I actually called Raju, your former partner at RE, yeah. <laughs> our board member and said, Hey, how much is coaching? You know, like CEO coaching. Uh, Cause like when they quoted me, I was like, had sticker shock. He's like, I don't know. Most of my founders like $10,000 a month. I'm like, what? I'm like, oh, that's insane. Like, there's no way I'm having the company pay $10,000 a month. I, I am not paying that. And I got a package with them that was, I forget how many sessions for a fixed fee and ended up taking a year to do it all. And the reason I got a second coach was because I, I basically like, I spread that package with that company I had out enough that I didn't see them every week. So I then stumbled upon through a close friend, another life coach. So not a CEO, not an executive coach, but a life coach in California. My CEO mm -hmm. coach being in New York, who had a very different sort of perspective, right? The California perspective and the East Coast, West Coast. And I really, and she's a woman and my coach is a man. And I liked having, uh, and she was much more uh, affordable. Um, so I sort of mixed them together, both for perspective and also for um, cost efficiency, I guess. But it's, mm -hmm. it's you know, I've I see one of them every week. So every other week I'm on a cadence pretty much. Yeah. And you obviously get a lot of value out of it or you wouldn't keep doing it. And by the way, we have an executive coach internally um, and we have had for two years that I, we make accessible to our managers. They do group sessions together. Yeah. At some point we had like, you could get six weeks one-on-one -on -one, and then you would get put into a group. There are other resources, by the way, Foundry Group, which is one of our investors as an investment in a company called Maru which is like mm -hmm. in-app mindfulness training and, and breathing work. I was doing that at the same time. It's like a six or 12 week program. Mm -hmm. uh, they gave it to us as a benefit uh, during COVID to help the founders. They gave all the founders access to it. Um, I think it's otherwise pretty inefficient, but they dovetail it with group therapy. So you can do the app training every day on your own. It's like videos and exercises. And then you can jump into a group once a week for the first however many weeks, although I didn't do the I didn't do the latter part. But I found all this stuff pretty incredible because I mean, what, one of the things that Pete talks about in this blog post that I'm sort of looking at over here is like there's the three groups of things that these 39 moves and to survive and thrive. But the second one is, or the third one is managed psychology, right? Because yeah. the biggest thing in these times is, by the way, the one positive about the sort of cycle that we're going into is the iconic, the most iconic companies are built in these cycles, right? Um, this is when you're forced to be creative, sort of creative limitation, you get better access to talent, um, money is sort of scarce, but like that means there's less competition. Um, but the psychology is the hard part to manage the thread the needle. 
Totally. I mean, I think just being able to every day not actually quit when you want to quit and just getting yourself through it insanity. Let's talk a little bit more about the other pieces of your support circle. So obviously, you know, I was at RE before and we invested in Knock and Raju and Jason are fantastic and the whole team there. Um, I know you work closely with them, but how do you how do you know you have a right like a good founder VC relationship or a bad one? Like what is the litmus test for that? What should it look like and what should it not so that the founders out there know what they should be looking for? Um it's really important to have a friendship with your investors. Like you have to click, there has to be chemistry, right? Like you're, you're getting married to these people to some extent, just like you are your co-founder, right? And it's like, if you don't like your co-founder, you should not be founding a company. If you don't like your investor, one bad investor can really make your, your whole life miserable. Right. And by the way, the rest of the board and, and investors unhappy too, because if they're just you know prickly and they're in the board meetings and everyone's got the same like vibe. Um, so if you can, in times like these, especially you have no choice, get to know your investor. I just think there has to be a personal chemistry first and foremost. And, you know, Raju and I had that. So Raju, who was who led our first round with you guys at RE. I actually don't know if you remember this or, or know this, but I walked into his office at the time I was doing a lot of angel investing and mm-hmm. he had just come over to RE having decided he was going to go all in on, cause he's a former founder having gone on investing. Mm-hmm. And I said, Raju, I just, I want advice on whether I should go into VC and do this full time. I've done all these angel investments or if I should start a company. And he said, well, what company would you start? And I, I said, eh, Jamie and I are thinking about doing this. And he goes, I'll write you a check right now for $400,000. I'm like, no, 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 I'm not pitching you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking you for advice. This is the ask for advice, get money, ask for money, get advice thing. And he and I known each other because I actually pitched him at my last company. So I'd actually known Raju. That was, this is 2015. I'd actually known Raju for three or four years. And he didn't invest, by the way, in my last company, uh, which also got sold, but, but we stayed in touch. Um, and so it's, yeah. you know, like Mark Schuster talks about dots, not, you know, lines, not dots. If you read his blog post about sort of getting to see somebody in multiple times over a period of time and you get confidence and you get to know them and sort of the, re- the, the, the interview person comes out of, you know, comes off and the real person comes out. And I do remember um, Raju doing that. I heard, I heard that story. But I'm glad you had such a great support circle to go through this entire thing. Um, we're going to be up on time in a second. But any any other uh, advice for first-time founders? Because you've been through this journey twice now. Um, and I guess advice for founders and also why do you do it, right? Because it's obviously stressful and chaotic and all these things. And you have a lot of responsibility on your shoulders, as you mentioned. So what makes you still want to do this every single day? Um. For me, it's just my, my passion. Founding, I first founded my first company when I was 15. I'm the youngest of five, by the way. My dad worked for what is now Dell Chemical his entire life. His father worked for that. Like that, he's of a generation of, you know, career uh, company kind of people. Like I just chafed at that idea. And so I, we all kind of wanted to do the opposite thing. I, I liken it to, and I got the bug pretty early when I was a teenager. I started reading Inc. Magazine. That was the thing to do back then. Inker, you know, Fortune, Fast Company eventually. I couldn't get enough. I would reread those books. It was a passion. It was a drive. Uh, I started my first business when I was a teenager. And I had started a couple businesses that actually paid my way through college. And my parents didn't have to do it. I don't know. I think about there's a, there's a movie called Point Break. It's now old. Um, but it's Keanu Reeves. Uh, where he's an FBI agent, undercover FBI agent, Patrick Swayze. And that Patrick Swayze is like a bank robber. <laughs> he's a surfer. He has this like band of bank robbers and they're surfers. And Keanu Reeves like goes undercover as an FBI agent, as a surfer. But at some point along the way, he asks Patrick Swayze's character, like, why do you keep doing this? You have plenty of money because they rob so many banks. And he's like, it's the adrenaline, man. <laughs> but I, like, I, think that, I think that that's what startups are like. There's some point at which yeah. 
you know, I say to people all the time internally along the way, I have this like slide where it's two people on a roller coaster and they're going down and they're clearly at the top of the hill. And one is like this giant smile on their face and the other one is like horrified, right? And I, my point is like, you can both be on the same ride and have both having very different experiences. Startups are for some people and you love them and you get addicted and there's an adrenaline, you can become an adrenaline junkie. You get to do so many different kinds of things versus being in a company where you're work, working on one thing. And I think at some point you either know you hate it and you'll, you you want to go work for a big company and you want like, you know, consistency <laughs> or you can never do anything else again because you're spoiled with the variety and the opportunity. And, you know, Peter Thiel said, I don't know if you remember this, this is very controversial, but he was like paying people not to go to college uh, and go work for a startup instead because his hypothesis was you'll get, and that's true, I'm not encouraging people not to go to college, by the way, but, you know, you'll get way more experience in a year at a startup than you will four years uh, at a university. And I guess the other sort of advice to a founder is, um, you know, they say it's lonely at the top, the loneliness syndrome, like, don't let that happen. Just find friends, commiserate. The blog post I wrote was very well received because I was super transparent and vulnerable. I had our biggest competitors come up to me at conferences and reached out to me and said, wow, that was amazing. And people want and are drawn to vulnerability and honesty. And by the way, it's just therapeutic for you. So don't, uh, don't hide yourself in a in a room and pretend it's actually all okay. Yeah, no, I think that is great advice, right? Like you don't need to put on a show for anyone. Just be yourself and be honest about what's happening. And actually, if you want to go see more um, about the story, Sean did write an incredible blog post about everything that he went through in the last year. And we'll put it in the show notes here. And thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Maria. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. If you want more stories like this, go to www.kindredcapital.vc forward slash founders uncut. And as always, if you're a founder and the journey is hard, you're not alone and you're not doing anything wrong. It's just really hard to be a founder. So if Sean's story resonated with you, please join us again on Founders Uncut. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.